0: It's episode 108 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Fien. Today on the program is Kellyanne McKercher. They're the author of the book, Beyond Sticky Notes, and we're going to discuss how to develop a mindset focused on co-designing to shift how we approach our design process. Kellyanne, welcome to the program. It's wonderful to have you here.
1: It's nice to be with you. Thank you, Jeff.
0: And I understand that uh, we are recording uh, today and you are in Sydney.
1: I am in Sydney. I'm in Sydney on Aboriginal land. So it's Wangal and Gadigal country.
0: Got yeah. it. I have uh, spent time there. I've been uh, in Melbourne and Brisbane. I've even been over to um, Tasmania. Uh, and so I'm a big fan of all of that. It reminds me so much of growing up in Southern California. I think there's a, there's a, a very similar vibe in it. It's always just felt wonderful to be over there. So I miss it. I would like to get back.
1: One day, yeah. One, <laughs> one day, day post COVID. How how
0: how is your community kind of holding up uh, in this extraordinary time that we are in?
1: Yeah, I mean we're very. Um I guess, well-placed here in Australia. Like we have very low rates of uh, community transmission. We have an extremely well-resourced and very effective public health system. Um, We have done pretty well in looking after each other and following the rules. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, we're, I guess, holding up well. There's been a few, I guess, things that have probably made it harder we had really severe bushfires just before covid started right um and then we've sort of been having floods and all kinds of sort of natural disasters interspersed with covid which um you know i guess people's resilience takes a big hit in those kind of moments and it becomes really important to listen to people and to design with people Ah
0: yes, for sure, and I'm i excited to sort of explore that with you uh, as we have uh, the conversation here today. That that idea of dis- designing together. So I've been looking at your book. Uh, I guess my first question is uh, is what have you got against sticky notes? I have my my desk is co- <laughs> is covered with them, and now you want to take them away? What's <laughs> can you give me some context for the title?
1: I can give you some context for the title. So. Uh, Beyond Sticky Notes is definitely evocative. It's not a sort of condemnation that be, that sticky notes are never helpful in a design <laughs> practice. Right. Um, but what I'm trying to say with that and about that is that writing things on sticky notes privileges a particular way of being and doing and knowing, and it typically privileges people who kind of think in headlines who use sort of writing as their dominant form of communication and there's so many other ways to design together and talk together and make meaning together um, that don't have anything to do with post-it notes so for example in a co-design process we might start out by making a meal together so we practice being together and doing something together and maybe the sticky notes come out but maybe they don't come out at all across the whole design process. And we're actually using different techniques to do analysis and synthesis or identify our insights.
0: Interesting. So so other forms of activities, that that is very evocative, that idea of like, let's cook a meal together or or whatever the, the pertinent task might be or activity. I hadn't con- really considered that before. You know, t- uh, a couple of decades of a design career, uh, I wouldn't say stuck in a process, but comfortable. I think, in a process Mm. in which uh, there is, uh, you know, listening and synthesizing with a bunch of tools that I've just used for a long time. Mm, That's good.
1: And and I think the thing about that, though, is that all of that is about what we are comfortable with Mm -hmm. as designers, right? Like these are our tools and our techniques. And when we take design or design-infused work into community and into places where other people are trying to make change. Like it's not just our tools then that become something that's going to be helpful. And sometimes I guess I've found I'm less design-led and more design-infused, that I'm sort of bringing in design tools but I'm not necessarily prioritising my own comfort or sense-making and I'm leaving room for the way that other people might make sense as well.
0: Mm, it is, yeah, leaving room and really openness to to the context of the people uh, that you might be designing. Um, now I'm very, uh, very aware of my prepositions right now. Designing for, designing with, designing, yeah. <laughs> designing, designing at. at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that in in a piece that you had written. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Like uh, the, the. It feels like to me, and I've talked about this a number in a number of episodes on this show about this 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 shift that has ha- that happened very early in my career from like including people at all right and that was yes. that was where we started with like you don't you shouldn't just be designing technology in the lab and then throwing it to marketing to figure out how to you know make it appealing but instead including you know the end users and things like that and that was very much this idea of we are designing for people right instead of we are designing mm-hmm. technology and there'll be some use out there in the world we don't really care right and yeah. okay, let's let's put that in a context of 2025 20, years ago where right where that notion was not widely held uh versus today with with this idea that like just simply like designing for people is is now perhaps uh, uh as as you've mentioned an imbalance uh of power mm,
1: mm. i sort of see there as being four levels so mm. the the first level is really just doing at in absence of any engagement of any kind. Yeah. And as you say, um, it's even relatively recent that we've embraced the idea of, say, user-centred design mm-hmm. and even going out and seeking people's input, be it in discovery or prototyping, et cetera. I think the, the next step on from designing at is designing for, which we've mentioned, which might be, you know, patient-centred design, human-centred design, user-centred design, The thing there, though, is that we are still very much positioned as designers as decision-makers. We're still sort of making um, ultimate calls on meaning, on what gets through, on what gets made. Um, We obviously negotiate those with clients and funders and other folks, um, but the people who actually have to live with the consequences of the design decision in their lives are often not the ones that are ultimately making decisions. So this this next horizon of designing with, which might be called co-design or co-production, I think is really where we start reckoning with those power differences between who gets to decide and who is it that really has to wear the consequences because often as designers we finish a project and we walk away and we may never have to deal with that thing that we've left behind but I think that even more exciting thing is is actually a step beyond even designing with, which is being led by. And there's particularly here in Australia the emergence of design practices that are are really working in solidarity with what already exists in a community. For example, who are saying we have this idea for a movement around better mental health. We would like some support, some solidarity. We don't want you to come in and tell us how to think or what to do. Um, and that's even actually really different again. So I think those levels of designing at designing with designing for and designing with or being led by are appropriate at different times. Like it's not always going to be a thing that we design with people. Sometimes it's not the the time, sometimes the constraints are too difficult, um sometimes people don't want to design with us or they're tired. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's also not to say that designing with is like Uh, something we should always and absolutely be striving for sometimes a really robust human centered design can be um, super powerful
0: yeah okay that's really interesting uh i will admit to you that when i was sort of reading through some of this before we started talking i felt a little defensiveness right i was like well sure that's a great goal but is it is it for every context you know i wanted to hold back like But there's a place for expertise in design and deeply understanding technology so people don't have to uh, and being able to very even even in some sense, compassionately explain the technology through an interface. um, Whereas, oh, being led by people through, you know, design uh, that might make much more sense in a nonprofit context or in a governmental context where like here's a law and we're going to put it in place and you're going to, and you know, I think of like, uh, my struggle to get a driver's license in the UK. Like I want the privilege of driving, but in order to get it, I have to go through a bunch of stuff that feels really awful and you know, um, stuff like that. So,
1: Mm. I think, uh, our defensiveness is natural (laughs) and, you know, many of us have spent really a lot of time like building expertise in specific types of methods or technologies. Um, for me, the lens over the top of it is perhaps like you, uh, I sort of started out more on the commercial design side of things and it was kind of like banks and insurance and retail and aviation and these types of things. And I wasn't really that troubled about designing at people or designing for people. Like I sort of knew that these were people that were kind of um, benefiting from an experience, pretty kind of middle-class, reasonably well-off folks in society most of the time, not all the time, but when I s- stepped off and started doing more social design work, where we were looking at things like child protection reform, um, mental health services, domestic violence, that's where I got very bothered about the fact that I was making decisions about yeah. other people's lives, <laughs> and that also felt from a, a justice and reparation type perspective of um, if we if we're critical about the harms that systems do to people through taking away their choices, how is design different? If it's also taking away people's choices or if it's not providing agency through people being able to actually have a a say in the decisions that shape their lives, which is different, I think, to sometimes, you know, banking, insurance, retail.
0: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned agency, right? And when I think of like doing commercial design for a corporation, you know, in, in capitalism, then, um, there does appear, that, you know, that there's consumer choice. They don't have to use my, like, it's not a requirement to use my photo sharing app, you know, if they can use a different one. Um, to some degree, and I think that's where we, we have seen over the last few years in social media, like, wait a minute, I don't feel like I can be a part of society anymore without engaging in something like Facebook, but then I feel like if I don't quite have as much agency in my choice to use some of these tools, uh, then they have a lot of power that I'm uncomfortable with, right? So, so it does feed back in, um, I think, on the commercial side, and, and, and we don't have to think – it doesn't feel like um, – what you're proposing for co-design has to just remain in the domain of government services or nonprofit. So no, for sure, no. like that makes a lot of sense. Anyway, I'm doing therapy here with you to get through my defensiveness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm happy to be a sort of, I don't know, designing with therapist. <laughs>
0: there, you go. there you go. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back and dig into that some more. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by Forward Networks. Forward Networks reduces business risk by revolutionizing the way large networks are managed. How? Well, their advanced software delivers a digital twin of the network, which is a completely accurate mathematical model, only in software. The model serves as a single source of truth for the network so users can verify that their network is configured correctly and is in compliance with policies and is behaving exactly as they intended Forward enterprises can accurately predict the impact of a proposed change across every possible traffic path so network operators can roll out changes with confidence, all while the network stays secure and reliable. It really is an invaluable tool for your company. Fortune 500 companies and large public sector organizations are turning to mathematical models of the network. Forward networks have customers like PayPal and Verizon and Goldman Sachs, along with several large government agencies. It was founded in 2013 by four Stanford PhD graduates who felt empathy for network operators and know that security is top of mind for IT professionals and business leaders. So they sought to apply principles of modern software development to the network. You can request a demo at forwardnetworks.com slash presentable. Do it today. That's forwardnetworks.com slash presentable. And if you go there now, check it out. It's at forwardnetworks.com slash presentable. Our thanks to Forward Networks for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. You know, one of the things that really uh, struck me uh, around some of these principles uh, that you're proposing for co-design is around the relationship between the people making and the people, I guess, receiving, and the importance of trust in that relationship, which is super interesting to me. Can, can you uh, can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so I think as we step on from designing for, where, for example, we recruit people for research and they come in and we sort of say, you know, what's your experience? And then we yeah. give them a voucher and off they go. Um, in a designing with process, what we're really asking for is people's partnership, not just their participation and not just showing up to a particular session but coming with us along discovery, along design, um, along maybe even implementation and evaluation. Um, so I think the thing that matters there is the the quality of the relationship and the speed at which that relationship can work. So if we've just met and I'm inviting you to come into a process, a co-design process that's maybe in a social space um, where it's a sensitive topic, I'm not going to say, Jeff, the workshop's next week. I'll see you there and we're going to start investigating child protection, for example. I might, you know, have a cup of tea with you or have a conversation about sort of what your background is, your context is, what's what safety might look and feel like to you or the lack of it. Um, and I guess in building relationships with the people that we are going to be designing with, we're sort of building our capacity to challenge each other but also to have people in the room who would often be excluded for reasons of just not feeling safe enough to come Mm -hmm. along to, for example, some kind of group setting where we're going to um, maybe not share our most, you know, deepest, darkest stories, but at least be somewhat sort of vulnerable enough to learn, to share, to test ideas, to call each other out and in. So I think the relationship side of things, what I would sort of say is if we don't have time to build relationships in a more just genuine kind of human way, we don't have time for co-design. And that perhaps is that we might be doing more of a user-centered process that's more transactional mm-hmm. and less transformational.
0: That Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if, if by, by some definition, we can consider the design process as a search for unmet needs, right? Like I think that's one way to think about what we do as designers, then asking somebody for the the, the vulnerability to share what is unmet in their lives—it's a big deal, right? As opposed to like, I need twenty minutes of your time, and I'll send you an Amazon gift card. Thank you. Like, I'll see you on Zoom. I get it. All right, that makes a lot of sense.
1: And I think it's it's also about a different kind of commodity which is people's hopes. And when we bring people into a a more collaborative design process where maybe the object of that process is a change and maybe it's a big change, a needed change, a long-time coming change, what we're really asking people to sign on to is being hopeful with us and kind of giving us that commodity of their hopefulness. So there's almost like um, some kind of responsibility to wrap around that to say, well, let's maybe treat you well and treat each other well because we have hopes and fears and frustrations. Um, Yes, maybe needs that aren't being met, but maybe we also have aspirations and strengths that we particularly want to bring into the design process because the the thing that's unfortunate about services is services need needs. So sometimes we're targeting people Um, in a way that kind of reinforces a deficit they have or something they can't do as opposed to asking them about the, the strength or resilience they have and what that might mean. So, for example, the Australian Centre for Social Innovation here in Australia have a program called Family by Family and this is a program where families who have been through a hard time support other families who are currently going through a hard time and maybe teetering at the edge of the child protection system. Now that could have been like a a formal government delivered program, but I guess in asking families to share their strengths, it became known that there was a whole bunch of families at the level of community who had all this built resilience and actually wanted to do something with that and wanted to share that with other parts of their community. So in that, we kind of could find a peer-to-peer model mm. as opposed to necessarily like a traditional doing service to model. But if we only ask people to share their deficits and their shortcomings mm. and then we build services around that, we're kind of missing the point. Mm.
0: That's great. That's really illuminating. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You uh, you also talk about uh, building capability. Um, and I was, I was struck by this idea of the designer as uh, moving from, Being an expert to being more of a coach. Mm.
1: Mm. This is a a big shift, I think, particularly if we're used to being the people who are doing the facilitation, for example, of design research activities. So, one of the models which comes up a lot in a co design process is where I might move from being a design researcher and going out into community and talking to people to supporting a group of community members to go out and talk to each other in their natural network. And I know that some people listening will like have a little shudder where they (laughs) think, well, what about the rigor and, you know, what about all these things we know how to do? Um, I'm not suggesting that's not important, but again, if we're kind of taking this relational approach, we're saying it's probably more dignified most of the time to have a conversation with someone, you know, particularly about something that's sensitive in your life and that often when we say, you know, there's these people we can't reach, it's often just that the strength of our networks and relationships aren't going to take us there. But when people are reaching each other in their communities, you know, they are, are often able to have conversations that you and I just wouldn't be able to have and often wouldn't be appropriate or feel very good for us to show up and have. So I guess in that role we might be sharing our expertise around, you know, how do we ask really curious questions or how do we make sense of what we've heard in a way that goes beyond our own biases and our own stories. So that move from um, expert to coach is an important one, but we also have to be careful not to just force design methods on people because many of our design methods, I I believe, are really helpful. But, you know, we also have to be a bit willing to say maybe something else will come up through the process where, you know, even we want to change a little bit what we're coaching people in and around by way of any part of the design process.
0: So it it feels like a, like a supportive conversation, eh? like Hmm. what, you know, I've, I I agree around the rigor of like collecting data, right. And trying to be as free from bias as possible, uh, uh, trying to be as, uh, or, uh, open to the direction of the conversation without leading towards a solution that I really want and things like that. Those could be the sort of, if I'm asking a member of a community to help collect, you know, experiences that we can, that we can use to generate solutions, uh, providing that kind of context, maybe. Is that how you see the coaching? Like, let me, you know, it's often better to ask questions this way, but, you know, as you go out, keep that in mind. Is that
1: yeah and we can do that in just a you know a sort of informal participatory way where we might just bring that group of what I would call community insight gatherers together and maybe across a couple of sessions start to build up some of those skills around some of the same skills that we have as design researchers or social researchers, and then the analysis and synthesis is then something we would do in a participatory way as well. So we don't kind of take that away back into our offices, but we might do a kind of a jam or a workshop with those community insight gatherers to really be inquiring about what we heard and what patterns and meaning we would make out of that, and then what they want to share about their own community stories. So we're not saying okay, well, I'm going to run off to a conference and share your stories. Ah. <laughs> but we're saying, you know, how is it that that you would want to share this and where are we going to share this to have influence, whether it be at a local level, a federal level, whatever.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. All the way through, yeah, all the way through the, the process. That's great. I like the word jam. Like, Yeah? that's That's interesting. Like get everybody, like all the people that have been participating and now let's see what comes out of it, like – See what uh, what gets sparked, um, mm. and then maybe even write a couple of the things down on sticky notes.
1: But maybe not. That's fine. That's you good. might. You might <laughs> virtually or physically. <laughs>
0: This episode of Presentable is brought to you by The Inside Track. Hey, if you're looking for a new show to listen to, try to you should check out The Inside Track. Uh, it's a podcast from Microsoft with a host, Carrie LaBelle, who interviews industry experts, insiders, and analysts from the automotive industry, covering long-term trends around how people have different expectations for their cars and the effects of technology uh, and the industry strategies that they're trying to respond. Super interesting. They have a bunch of segments in every show, like how... how artificial intelligence is being used in automotive manufacturing or what's happening with connected vehicles and how they're using cloud simulations, uh, intelligent infrastructure, loads of stuff. They've got guests from big auto manufacturers and and technology platforms uh, or the companies that develop technology platforms for the automotive industry. Super, super interesting. I was just listening to an episode about how the attitudes are really shifting over the past decade in the automotive industry where the manufacturers kind of always left the customer experience to the dealerships. Like, it's up to you. You take care of them. Uh, And how much that has changed. You know, we see uh, companies like Tesla selling direct and and things like that. Uh, Fundamental shift in how they think about the experience they have to create for the cars that they're making. Super super interesting. So go and listen to it. Just search for The Inside Track wherever you get your podcast or click the link in our show notes here. Thanks to The Inside Track and Microsoft for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Yeah, so you have a series of sort of principles for shifting your mindset into one of co-design, participatory uh, work together and mm. things like that let 's talk about that a little bit about that that shift in mindset um, and and sort of starting with this idea of um, the lived experience right um,
1: mm. tell me about that mm. yeah, so I think I term this one elevating lived experience, mm-hmm. and the reason I name this very specifically as lived experience or living experience is in recognition of the expertise that people have about their own lives and the reason this is named specifically is that we have in many systems a real dominance of professional expertise we know how to deliver a service Um, what we don't know is about the the lived and felt experience of that and also that people don't wander around in the world as service users (laughs) they have sort of full (laughs) lives outside of that context Um, but particularly here, what what we're recognising is that the lived or living experience is an absolutely vital contribution to co-design. But not just again as a participant, but as a partner, and that people are really, um, I guess, partnering with a more professionalised expertise to build a much bigger uh, picture of what's possible, what's happening, um, what people's hopes and frustrations are. But the the, the trap here, though, is getting back into a passive empathy thing where we think, well, we've elevated lived experience because we made a persona or we did a journey map or we wrote a story about someone's lives. To really elevate lived experience is to make sure that people with lived or living experience are telling their own stories and also able to be leading systems reform or leading inside of organizations equal to other forms of expertise. That's kind of the longer game. It's not just, you know, do better stories or make design artifacts.
0: Interesting, interesting. It reminds me of conversations uh, on on this show in the past around, for example, the the uh, role of accessibility in design, and even the problematic mm-hmm. phrase accessibility, right? Um, and uh, and 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 doing this sort of co design with people with disabilities and empowering, right. And have, have not, not even empowering that that's the wrong dynamic as well. But this idea of, um, having it be led by people that aren't necessarily part of an organization and, and uh, you know, some of the difficulties in trying to even achieve that within an organization.
1: Absolutely. And I think this also comes into how, I think one of the things that designers can do if we're convening co-design is start to build an awareness for professionals of how is it that you start to share power and voice and space and, you know, how is it that you go out of your way to extend comfort and hospitality and go to people like where they're comfortable rather than saying come into our office for a co-design session, yeah. <laughs> which we know, like we know that in design, but um, this that kind of hospitality aspect, which is another one of the mindsets, yeah. our extension of hospitality, is really not just about, you know, here's a cup of tea and making sure you're comfortable, but the idea that people can come as they are to a co-design process and that they don't have to, you know, learn how to be more professional or mm. more acceptable to in order to be bringing something that's incredibly helpful, which is their their lived or living experience.
0: Oh, I like that. The setting makes such a huge difference then, doesn't it? Like come into our big fancy office in the city center, and you know, and all of this this um, artifice that I don't know can really, yeah, that, that that seems to make a big difference. I love that word hospitality, and um, mm. yeah, so uh, so bringing hospitality into our practice is something I haven't quite considered, you know, specifically like that before.
1: Yeah, it's it's underrated. I think in design currently we sort of, I think sometimes we think about the aspects of, you know, making a workshop environment look nice or look designally, but we're not necessarily thinking about how we're explicitly making people welcome both and how we speak to them ahead of designing together, how we sort of invite them to come, even simple things like you don't have to dress fancy. To come to mm-hmm. co-design like you don't have to dress up like a professional to come to co-design like i think sometimes there's all these invisible barriers that people experience like it can be really practical things like i don't have childcare, so i can't come to that session but if i say well we're going to have a session at, at this community center we're going to provide childcare at the center as well so bring your family bring your kids they'll be cared for you can still see them but we're going to also do some activities on the side of that that are our co-design activities.
0: like that. I like that. Um, you also have this phrase, uh, being in the grey. Can you tell, tell me a little bit about what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so look, I, I think as designers we have very high – Uh, tolerance of ambiguity and we're used to sort of moving through processes in which there's parts where we're kind of swimming and unknowing and everything's a bit messy and we're not quite sure what's emerging quite yet i think that however we're reasonably unique in that sense and there's many other professions that are well rehearsed and in well, a perception of certainty and sort of, you know, having very tightly managed activities and timeframes and project plans. Um, really what being in the grey is about is this commitment to the emergence of something new. And I sort of think about it as, you know, tra- sort of we're travelling, as a friend Elizabeth Goodwin has said before, we're travelling through the fog and it's not always clear what's going to emerge out of the fog, but we've committed to going through the fog together and sort of waiting patiently as whatever it is that's starting to emerge, whether it's an insight, a solution, an opportunity, that we're sort of able to sit with the discomfort of that being emergent and and not sort of quickly saying, oh, this just feels too horrible and it's taking too long and let's quickly jump to <laughs> a decision and get ourselves out of this ambiguity.
0: Often uh, th- there's a lot of difficulty in uh and taking that into an organization, into, you know, like the corporate world and stuff like that. I've certainly found that in my own career uh, where people have very often just hired me to give them the answer, right? Um, uh, whereas I come back with just many, many, many more questions. And, um, and yeah, I think you're right. I think there is a, a he- hesitancy around that that might be a little bit foreign mm-hmm. to designers who are used to.
1: But it's also not necessarily something that people with lived experience might be familiar with either. So one of the things I like to do at the start of a co-design process is draw for people, not only the the journey by way of process, but the journey by way of how it feels. So, you know, I might kind of draw for people and say, you know, the start of discovery is exhilarating. Like we're sort of setting out a new The middle of discovery is terrifying and overwhelming, and there's so many inputs, and it's not clear where we're going, and our heads might be quite sore. Maybe our hearts are sore too, depending on the content. And then at the end of discovery, we start feeling better because we have the sense of our insights, and we start sort of landing at a moment of certainty. But then we're off again, (laughs) sort of into finding what might be a solution or an approach and that starts off being exhilarating and then sometimes we get overwhelmed by the options. And then again through kind of testing those options we start to see again what might be promising and we have these kind of points of certainty and points of ambiguity. So I think sometimes it also helps to to help people know that it's very normal to feel untethered or overwhelmed at particular moments of the design process because we know we're moving between kind of more divergent to more convergent and those divergent moments can be exciting but they can also be scary and overwhelming
0: yeah it's there there's it reminds me of the you know the very common trope uh that we have in design in the design world of like people don't like change right and i've always kind of pushed back against that to say that it it might not be so much that people don't like change it is that they don't like their expertise being taken away from them as a way of talking about like a redesign of a website and like, you know, Oh, we changed it and people got frustrated that it was changed, but like, no, they knew how to use it and now they don't. And you have taken that away from them. And so that th- that feels a little similar to this idea of like, like, you know, r- regardless of how satisfying you find whatever it is we're, we're dealing with right now, there, there is the potential for, Uh, things to be better but we're going to go through a period of not knowing for a while like Mm. not holding on to the thing that feels safe but unsatisfactory um on our on our path to potentially something even better we're not going to know in the middle and that's a you're right that's hard for a lot of people i think
1: Mm, mm. and it's hard to if if And we are all rewarded <laughs> for having answers and sort of having a lot of certainty. And and that's changing. Like we're having a lot more room for different, more contemporary styles of leadership that are much more about curiosity. Yeah. Um, but there's still very much a view, I think, often of people coming into a process thinking I am going to be judged um, based on my value as a person or as a professional based on how how much I know <laughs> and how quickly I get to the solution. And I think it's both liberating and a bit scary for folks to kind of release them from that and say, actually, this is a process in which we all have something to share and all have something to learn. And love it that you've got solutions, but I'm going to need you to <laughs> kind of hold really gently to those and put them over to the side for a little while. Um, and maybe they will, in fact, become part of what they do and maybe they won't but having conversations about those things sounds really obvious, but it it often doesn't happen in a process.
0: Right. Yeah, for sure. You also have uh, some advocacy here for prototyping, which I quite like um, as an alternative to, you know, reports and slides and, uh, and other forms of, I guess what we'd say knowledge work. Right. Um, But that, uh, to, to be able to think by making and to create artifacts mm. a, as a way of uh, of moving through a process, uh, I quite like that.
1: Yeah. And look, I think, again, coming from more of the social side of things, many communities, particularly communities who have been kind of overlooked or under-resourced, often have a really strong and comprehensive sense of what needs to change, so it's not necessary to start from discovery <laughs> and say, can tell us again, you know, what it is that needs to change and can you relive your trauma again? So sometimes even to start at the point of prototyping and to make something that's that's accessible, that's an object, that's a exhibition, that's an experience is kind of a, a way of starting a bit further down the track in a point that feels a bit more Respectful to the fact that there's already a lot that's known, but what's not ha- happening is action. So a prototype is then prototyping is then the thing that's fueling the action and getting us closer towards the implementation of something, as opposed to just a very broad exploratory, which might be interesting for us as designers or as outsiders, mm. but it's not interesting to people who have been telling us what they need yeah. <laughs> for years and years and years.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that's great. So ultimately, it sounds like what you're talking about is trying to gather as much perspective as you possibly can in in ways that maybe traditionally don't look like uh, the way we have practiced design. It's a, it, it is quite a shift of mindset, isn't it?
1: It is a shift of mindset, but I think the future is already here in this respect. And there is almost this... I can sort of see the split in the design industry where there's a, a whole bunch of folks who some for like 10, 20, even 30 years have been practising in the small community-led type of way and they don't typically get platformed in kind of design conferences and, you know, they're not typically the people that we hear from. Um, whereas there's this other kind of part of design which still has a lot of dominance, which is the more commercial kind of flavor which it is kind of framing people in this way of participants which as we've talked about can be helpful and appropriate but I think we have to my view is that we have to flip who we're hearing from in terms of the kind of design leadership kind of around the world and hear much more from these folks that are practicing in these sort of Community-led and community-accountable ways, as opposed to continually talking about, you know, the latest way to do a wireframe, right?
0: yeah. for example. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It is a much different and and uh, and it seems much much more valuable conversation. That's great. If people want to learn more, uh, Kellyanne, where can they get? Uh, where can they dig into all of this?
1: Yeah, so they can visit the website, which is beyondstickynotes.com. They can find me on Kelly Anagram on Twitter or add me on LinkedIn. Always happy to hear from folks. Um, And they can also check out the model of care for co-design. So this is a sort of brand new practice tool. It's a set of uh, physical cards Mm. um, that sort of have some Some tips for designers facilitating co-design in terms of what are the things you'd want to think about before you bring people together? What are the things you want to think about while people are together to stay together and not sort of disappear out of the process because they didn't feel safe enough? And what do we need to think about as co-designers coming to an end, particularly for those who are not well socially connected and maybe a design process has been quite an important thing in their lives. So how do we minimise the distress of the ending and think about ways that folks with lived experience can continue to have uh, meaningful roles within the ways that things get delivered and monitored and evaluated and scaled?
0: Wonderful. The book is called Beyond Sticky Notes. I will put a link to that and all the other resources you just mentioned in the show notes. Uh, Kellyanne, thanks so much for being on the program.
1: It's a delight. Thank you for having me.